Tonight is the second week that we are looking at dating in our series on relationships called the birds and the bees. And in this stage of life called young adulthood, this is a common topic that often uh, is on our minds, I would imagine. Uh, It's common to ask questions like, should I date this person or should I marry this person? Uh, And in general, we said last week, if you were here, uh, raise your hand if you were here last week. Okay, some of us. You know, I hope I didn't scare everyone else away. We have a few fewer people here tonight. Maybe the first dating talk was just a little, little too much. So hopefully this one will be a little better. But in general, we said last week, the Bible doesn't tell you who to marry. Isn't that unfortunate? It doesn't tell you whether you should get married. Instead, it gives you wisdom. It gives you some basic principles and insights so that when you do have to decide, you know, should I marry Sally Ann or should I date John Doe, you'll be the kind of person who makes wise and godly decisions. So, last week, we looked at the question of whom to date, so the things to think about before you get into a relationship. As promised, tonight, we're now going to look at how to date. What do you do after you get into a relationship? How do you date well? I want to just, by way of review, I want to review the three C's we looked at last week about uh, before you get into a relationship, what are the things you might want to look for. Three C's we mentioned, number one, character. So, date a person who has a reputation for being a person of character and integrity, number one. Number two... Church. This is one of the few examples where the Bible does actually give a direct command about whom to marry, and it's where it tells Christians not to marry non-Christians. We talked about that last week. And therefore, it's also not a good idea to date a non-Christian. And then the last C was chemistry. You know, don't just pick some random believer to date, but date someone that you mesh well with, that you actually believe has capacity to really become your best friend. So now, that uh, that was last week. Now we're going to look at the question, well, how how do you date? You know, once you've gotten into a relationship, what does it look like to date well? And that's actually where I want to start tonight, because believe it or not, it actually is possible to date well. A dating can be fun. It can be fun. But I think probably what it's maybe more notorious for being is for being messy, uh, stressful, painful, And just hard to figure out, (laughs) raise your hand if you can relate to this, or if you're feeling brave enough to admit that you can relate to this, I can relate to this. I mean, that's why every other song on the radio is like a breakup song. (laughs) So my guess tonight is that many of the deepest wounds that are represented in this room may actually have come from dating trauma. You know, maybe you had your heart broken, maybe you were abused in a relationship, maybe you crossed boundaries that you really wished that you hadn't. Uh, But God's a good God, and so his heart even in dating, is that you can experience his glory and goodness even in the joy and stress of trying to figure out that stage of life. You know, it's great if you date and it turns into marriage, but even if you break up, it's still possible for you to look back on that relationship and say, I am so thankful that I dated that person. I am a better man or woman because I dated that person. That's really possible. It's really possible. And if you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, how on earth, (laughs) how on earth can that be possible? I've never experienced that. I've never known anyone else who's experienced that. Well, this is the talk for you then, because what we're going to look at tonight is the question, how do you date well? And so what I'm going to do is try to provide five keys, which by and large are to be found in the book of the Bible called Song of Solomon. Now, mentioned last week as well, that Song of Solomon is a notorious love poem. It's a love poem, and it's a love poem because it's a lengthy, pretty flowery, pretty passionate dialogue between a husband and wife. And it's notorious because it celebrates married love, and it celebrates all of married love, including sex. But never fear, uh, it's only rated R 
after chapter 4, because that's when they get married. And we're just going to be focusing on chapters 1 through 3 once again, where they're just dating. So, what are the five basic uh, keys? What are the, the, what are the five basics for how to date well. Let me give them to you all at once, and then we're going to unpack them one by one. So the five keys, number one, uh, dating well looks like dating with intentionality, number one, with community, with purity, with discernment, and with your eyes on Jesus. So let's look at each of these one by one. So uh, go with me to Song of Solomon chapter two, and I'm going to read starting from verse eight, which begins with the girl talking here. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. All right, now this is fun. Anyone know what he's doing here? See what's going on in this, this little section? He's asking her out on a date. <laughs> you notice this? See, he comes from out of town. He shows up at her house, and he asks her out. <laughs> And by the way, he uses a very bold pickup line, verse 10. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Uh, now remember, this is poetry. Men, I wouldn't recommend trying this one at home. It's a, it's, a, it's a little forward. It's a little forward, but you know, to each their own, to each their own. However, here, okay, here's what's, here's what's to notice. Notice here that in this particular part of the song, the man takes initiative. The man takes initiative. Uh, one of the things that many commentators have often pointed out about Song of Solomon is how surprising the gender roles are. Uh, for example, the, the woman actually is far more outspoken than the man. And, and in fact, if you read chapter 1, you'll see that she speaks first, refuses to be shy about her feelings for him, and instead of taking the initiative to get to know her, she takes the initiative to get to know him. But, on the other hand, in chapter 2, verse 14, he pursues her. In chapter 2, verse 4, she lets him lead her. And in chapter 2, verse 3, he protects her. Traditionally minded people, when it comes to gender roles, love their lists, you know, lists of extra things that you won't find in the Bible about all the things that men must do and that women must do in a relationship. Progressively minded people would deny that there's any difference between men and women at all. But the man's and woman's roles in Song of Solomon, you can't fit them neatly into either category. The Bible never tells women, you know, thou shalt never drop hints that thou art interested in a man unless said man asks you out first. And the Bible never tells men, thou shalt always plan every single date or else you're not a good leader. <laughs> you know, maybe the guy needs a clue. You know, maybe the girl's a great planner. The Bible is clear that, that, you know, that it was, it's not necessarily clear on saying, you know, here's exactly what this role looks like and that role looks like. And yet, it's also very clear that the progressive instinct just to deny that there's any distinction or difference in role between men and women is incorrect. And we see that in the song in how the man initiates. So guys, he asks her out. 
And it's not just to casually hang out. You guys following me? (laughs) He's clear and he's deliberate about his intentions to go out with her. He invites her out on a date. Not a quote-unquote vague, unspecified time of hanging out one-on-one with a female friend who I maybe am attracted to. Uh, So let me just speak to the guys here for, for, for a minute. Guys, one of the marks of the man in Song of Solomon is servant leadership. Their pursuit of each other is mutual, and yet repeatedly the man puts himself out there for the sake of the woman. A key way that he does that, this is really important, a key way that he does that is through clarity. Clarity. He unambiguously asks her out, even though he could get rejected. It's pretty, pretty brave. And he takes initiative in declaring his interests so that she isn't left guessing at his intentions. And this is something we actually saw last week in chapter 1. Maybe you remember how in verses 5 and 6 we hear the woman voicing kind of some initial insecurities about whether she's attractive enough to catch his attention. But then in verses 9 and 10, he speaks to those insecurities by professing an interest in her. And what's the result of him nailing his colors to the mast? The result is relational security. She feels safe around him. In chapter 2, verse 3, she says, I delight to sit in his shade. Now, just a quick story on this. Uh, This is something that I, personally, have gotten very, very wrong in in the past. You know, in the first relationship I was ever in, uh, you're going to probably laugh at me, uh, but it accidentally came out that one of my female friends uh, liked me, had feelings for me. And then that made me realize, oh my goodness, I think maybe I like her. And instead of clarifying, like, right away, whether I wanted to date her or just stay friends, I asked her to give me four months to pray about it. She accepted, and after that, we did decide to date. But those four months were just agony for her. And as I look back on that, I think, oh, what was I thinking? I mean, it's not wrong to pray, <laughs> but to, 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 to not be clear is not a courteous thing. So guys, if there's a girl you're interested in, don't do her the discourtesy of playing with her heart by being vague and aimless and (laughs) lily-livered. Ask her out. (laughs) Or if you're not going to ask her out, don't treat her like she's your girlfriend. And if you're already dating, take the initiative by bringing clarity throughout the process. When you drop her off after your first date, don't leave her wondering if you're ever going to call her. Say, that was a great date. If you're okay with it, I'd love to call you this weekend. And see, now she knows what your plan is. When you call her, don't leave her wondering if there's going to be a second date. Say, I'd love to take you on a second date. And, you know, for both guys and girls, if you know this person isn't for you, don't say so by ghosting them. (laughs) You know, say in person if you can, you know, thanks so much for tonight's date. Um, I, I don't really think I'm interested in a second date but I'm glad I got the chance to get to know you. Do you see how clarity is one of the most courteous things that you can bring to a relationship? And then here's another one uh, that is for both guys and girls. You know, I think, though, since men tend a lot of times to struggle with passivity, I'd encourage uh, the, the guys in the room to pay special attention to this, but when conflict or tension comes up in the relationship, don't let that fester. Bring clarity by humbly initiating a conversation about it. You know, go first in extending forgiveness agreeing to change, proposing solutions. Does that make sense? So so men, be intentional. You've got what it takes. Just initiate, clarify, beware passivity, 
and be a servant leader and be humble. You know, take initiative, but don't be pushy. Invite confidently, but graciously. Respect her if she refuses you. And if it's a serious relationship, don't be afraid to patiently pursue. You know, there's the old saying, faint heart never won fair lady. So ladies, uh, let me now speak to you. First of all, I want to note that even though the guy in the song asks the girl on the date, that's not the same thing as a biblical rule saying it has to be that way. I do know of at least one Thrive marriage that actually started when the girl asked the guy. And some of you probably know exactly <laughs> who I'm talking about. But because the stats do say uh, that 93% of women prefer that the man ask them out, the more common scenario might be this. You know, what do I do if I'm interested in a guy, and maybe even if a guy that I know is interested in me, and he just won't ask me out. <laughs> you know, am I just kind of doomed to just wait there forever? And I suppose, you know, you, you could ask them out, but actually the stats on men say that 83% of men prefer to do the asking. So, you know, here's another approach you might try. Now, again, you know, don't try to derive some kind of like hard and fast rule from this, but notice what the woman in the song does. The man initiates, but the woman inserts. <laughs> what well, we saw this last week, you know, he winds up on her radar before she winds up on his. So what does she do? She graciously inserts himself, herself into his life. So chapter 1, verse 8, she goes to his church. She hangs out with his sheep. You know, this is, by the way, what worked for Ruth. If you read the book of Ruth, this is like what her mother-in-law says. Like, hey, just, you know, go spend time with that guy and see if he, you know, see, see what happens. Now, this, this, uh, this leads me to one final comment. No matter how good he may be at initiating, uh, the relationship only works if she is willing to respond to him. So in chapter 2, verse 10, he invites her on a date, and she agrees to go with him. Now, I mean, that's probably pretty obvious, like, you know, it has to be both ways. But the reason I bring it up is, is twofold. First, ladies, don't be afraid to break his heart. <laughs> don't be afraid to break his heart. You know, she agrees to go on an extended date with him in chapter 2, but that's only after she's gotten to see his character in chapter 1. You know, maybe you shouldn't actually respond to a guy if he isn't a good guy. But beware of letting the pendulum swing so far the other way. In our progressive era, it's countercultural for a woman to let a man lead and initiate. And not without reason, because if he's a bad leader, you might actually wind up getting hurt. But that's always true when it comes to love. And this is something that C.S. Lewis knew really well. Here's something that he said about love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So it takes courage for both men and women, but don't give in to fear. Take those fears to Jesus, make a decision for or against, and move forward with intentionality. That's the first key for dating well. Okay, so on to the second one uh, for dating well, and this is a little shorter. To date with community, uh, community number two. We noted last time there's actually a third speaker in the song besides just the man and the woman, and it's a group of friends, uh, sometimes called the Daughters of Jerusalem. 
And with the exception of chapter 4, which, you know, makes sense, chapter 4 is their wedding night, uh, the friends either speak or are mentioned in every chapter of Song of Solomon, which tells you that their entire relationship grows and develops in the context of community. Now, just stepping back a little bit, why is community so important to a relationship? Well, you know, note, first of all, the role that the friends actually play in, in the text. So, on the one hand, uh, you see that they're cheerleaders. So, like in chapter 3, for example, there they are attending the wedding. Uh, but more importantly, you also see them play the role of counselors. Uh, here's an example, chapter 1, verse 4. The friends are there to endorse both the guy and the girl's character before they're even a couple. So they say, we rejoice and delight in you, it's feminine. We will praise your, it's masculine, love more than wine. So, you know, in other words, they're saying, hey, we, your church community, we know both of you guys really well. And we think you guys are actually mature enough for a serious relationship. Or, you know, maybe it's the other way around. You know, we, your church community, we know you guys really well. And we're pretty convinced that actually, you know, you really should consider just, like, not dating right now. <laughs> but we'd love to help you grow. You know, that's what a good community does. So, uh, another example, chapter 1, verse 8. Notice here that it's actually the friends that help set the girl up with the guy. Meaning that they, just don't, they, they, they don't just think that these two people are great people individually, but they, they, they together form a great relationship. So you know, that's, that's one thing you see the friends doing. One, one other thing I want to point out is that community helps you process the relationship. And this is so important because sometimes the most helpful way to get clarity on God's will for a relationship is to process that out loud with trusted confidants who ask good questions. And this is what we see the friends doing, uh, for example, in chapter 5, verse 9. So, I uh, can't underscore enough how pivotal it is to have community speak into your relationship. And since they're outside the relationship, one of the things that they can do is that they're going to be able to see things that you can't see because you're inside the relationship. They're going to be able to see potential red flags, yellow flags, uh, things that you can't see. So no matter how confident or excited you are about your relationship, if you don't actively seek out Christian community who knows you and your significant other well enough to speak into your relationship, you could be setting yourself up for ruin. And one of the things that I've seen among my friends over the years are couples who date or even get married and they pull away from community as they do that. You know, you've kind of found your special person, so now you don't really need other people anymore. But the problem is that those relationships haven't tended to do as well. And some of them have even ended in, in, in kind of breakdown of some kind. So that's why dating with community is so important. That's the second key. On to number three. Number three. The third key for dating well, uh, I would propose to you, is to date with purity. Now, um, I'm aware here that this word purity is a pretty loaded term. Uh, for some of you, it may evoke memories of kind of Christian purity culture. This is a term for kind of the popular movement back in the 90s and 2000s. It was famous for uh, its, its legalistic dating standards and then its tendency to shame anyone who didn't keep them perfectly. Uh, but that's, that's not where I'm going with this. That's not where I'm going with this. Um, you know, it's true. This is a Christian dating talk. And yes, one of the topics that does and actually really should come up in a Christian dating talk is the topic of boundaries. Uh, but before we talk about getting boundaries right, I actually want to talk first about what it looks like to even just get love right. When our culture uses the word love, uh, what does that tend to mean? Any thoughts on this? Affection, okay. Yeah. 
Feeling, yeah, okay, yeah. Attraction, yeah. Maybe a, a buzz of some kind? Some, what was that? What you make, oh, so like money? Yeah. And what was that? An increase of heart rate. Ooh. I wonder if anyone can relate to that. Uh, yes. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Yeah, you know, th th that's actually interesting because sacrifice kind of contrasts with some of these other ideas. You know, it seems like if I could kind of put an umbrella over those, a lot of those have to do with just like feeling some kind of buzz. And I would say that like that may be the, perhaps the more typical understanding of love. It means having some kind of strong romantic or erotic set of feelings for another person. And that, that definition could describe a committed marriage, but it could just as easily describe a one-night stand. The Bible's definition of love, I don't know that it's totally foreign to our culture, but I don't know that it's necessarily quite um, as readily present to our culture. The Bible's definition of love is infinitely richer, and it's infinitely more glorious. Biblical love is always to pursue the other person's highest good. Biblical love is always to pursue the other person's highest good. And if that's what love really is, then it totally changes how you approach a subject like boundaries. A commentators on Song of Solomon point out that one of the remarkable things about the song is the sexual restraint that exists throughout the man and the woman's courtship. So in the first three chapters, you know, it's obvious like the man and the woman, they're like, totally in love with each other, like they're extremely, overwhelmingly attracted to each other, and yet there's no sexual union. And, and that's in stark contrast to what you find after they get married. So for example, chapter 4, which, you know, fair warning, it's a poetic description of their, their wedding night. And that's why throughout the song you find there's this repeated refrain. It says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the doves of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, this is one of the many places in the Bible that calls Christians to abstinence, to not have sex before marriage. Another place you can go uh, to see this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, this is a passage about how Christians should approach sex and sexuality. And there Paul says uh, that since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And as you can see here, by contrasting sex in marriage with sexual immorality, the clear implication is that sex before marriage is not part of God's will for our lives. But why is this the biblical position? You know, why is it that this is how the Bible comes down? You know, if an unmarried couple chooses to have sex, isn't that okay, provided that they're both consenting adults? Well, let me first of all tell you what the reason is not. Uh, the reason is not, quote-unquote, sex negativity. It's not that Christianity sees sex as somehow inherently dirty, or inherently impure. I mean, it actually is the opposite. Sex, according to the Bible, is glorious. I mean, have you, even, have you ever read the whole Song of Solomon? I mean, like, go read the whole thing, and it will be embarrassingly clear to you. <laughs> Maybe even, like, red in the face, blushingly clear to you <laughs> that the Bible unabashedly celebrates sex. Or, you can go read Proverbs 5, where you will find a command for husbands to delight in their wives' breasts. That's actually in the Bible, which is why I feel the freedom to say it, despite, you know, you guys are probably blushing right now. Good thing I can't, can't tell. But no, the real reason that the Bible is against sex before marriage and in favor of healthy boundaries in dating is because 
of its ruthless commitment to love, to true, self-sacrificial, putting the other person above yourself, love. If you have sex outside of marriage, what you're essentially saying to that person is, I'm asking you to make yourself totally vulnerable to me physically, but once I've gotten what I wanted, I can walk away at any time. You're demanding of them full intimacy without full commitment. You're not loving them. You're using them. And it's not hard to imagine how incredibly harmful that kind of relationship can be. Um, here are two quotes from a book I'd recommend called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. They're kind of long quotes, but I, I think they're reading, worth reading in full here. Here's what it says. Sex is an emotional commitment apparatus. It's a method that God invented to do, quote, whole life entrustment and self-giving. So it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being, as you are literally physically joined. In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Even if you are not legally married, you may find yourself quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you. But that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility to even call you back in the morning. This, incong this incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. So, the Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with the other person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way, because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. Then, once you have given yourself in marriage, sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. Elsewhere, Tim Keller says that Christianity is not just a, a consensual, but it's actually a super consensual view of sex because it calls for whole body intimacy to take place only within the secure confines of whole life intimacy. That's what genuine love looks like, and that's what it looks like to pr always pursue the other person's highest good. And it shows, by the way, we'll, we'll do a Q&A at the end. It shows, by the way, that mere abstinence is absolutely not the same thing as purity. You can be in a chaste relationship and still be using the other person. Maybe you're using them emotionally to fulfill your emotional needs, but without being willing to commit to them. So purity is far more than something physical. Purity of heart looks like pursuing the other person's good in every way, and that includes emotionally, spiritually, and physically. So that if you guys don't wind up getting married, they'll still have felt like you treated them like royalty. But... But what about boundaries? I mean, sure, that's a question that still is relevant. You know, so you know, here I am saying, you know, the Bible counsels abstinence before marriage, but the question might be, well, how far can I go? <laughs> but see, I want to just suggest to you that even that question is already backwards because you're asking, how close can you get to sin? Instead of asking, how can I most honor God 
and most honor the other person? And answers to that question might look more like, well, you know, not putting yourself in situations where you know that you're vulnerable to do something that you'll later regret. Or not using physical touch in ways that are inappropriate and dishonoring to another person. Or, you know, another thought that I found helpful. The thing is, once you've crossed a boundary, you can't ever go back. So if that's true, why push it? You know, because I never know whether I'll actually marry a person until I marry them, I'd far rather be overly cautious with boundaries because it means I'll never have to have regrets. Now, look, um, I know that this is a really, really tough topic that we're touching on right now, and I know that none of us in this room has a perfect record in the area of sexual purity. Uh, so before moving on, I, I just I want to address anyone right now who's feeling overwhelmed because of a sexual past. Um, last week, read from Romans chapter 8, which says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means that there is grace for every single person in this room. And it means that God loves people who have been sexually active outside of marriage just as much as those who haven't. And on a practical note, if you or, or maybe a friend that you're trying to help is sexually active in a relationship right now, just because you're having sex does not mean that you should necessarily get married. In fact, sometimes having sex is a sign that the relationship actually isn't healthy because sex is the only thing holding it together. And that if you were to get married, that would actually just end in an even worse disaster. So the best thing you can do is to stop, seek counsel, and pursue healing. There is no limit to the kind of beauty and redemption that God can bring to your story. It doesn't matter what that story is. It doesn't matter what your past, present, or future looks like. God is a God who always can take the pieces of our lives and redeem them into an absolutely incredible, beautiful story. So I just want to leave you with that encouragement before we move on to the next topic. Two more really quick. <clears throat> Number four, date with discernment. With discernment. Uh, the purpose of dating is actually discernment. It's to discern whether your significant other is someone you want to spend the rest of your life with. Uh, but of course, the question is, how do you know? You know, how do you know if the relationship is actually marriage material? Um, well, let me suggest to you two things that you might watch for, uh, that you might discern um, as you're in the middle of, of dating. Well, number one, the first one is joy. <laughs> joy. Remember when the, what the guy says to the girl when he asks her out on their date? He says, see, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land. You know, look, he's saying, it's springtime. And if you're in a healthy relationship, that's what it should feel like. Uh, one commentator says about this passage, whenever any couple falls in love, it is spring for them because their lives are fresh. Everything in life has a new perspective. What was black and white is now in color. What was dark is light. Guys and girls, dating is supposed to be joyful. I mean, we're talking about spending the rest of your life with this person. <laughs> I mean, if you're not like experiencing some joy in their presence, like that probably means that, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you might want to like reconsider. <laughs> so, so be attentive, be discerning toward the presence of joy. You know, not just some kind of initial buzz, but to whether there's growing joy, peace, and affection in the relationship. And then a second thing to watch for is in, in times of tests. You know, every relationship is always going to have tests and obstacles. 
And the way that you react to those obstacles is going to be hugely indicative of whether this is a marriage-worthy relationship or not. So, look at chapter 2, verse 15, uh, where one of them says to the other, Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. And then uh, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I'm his. He browses among the lilies. So here their relationship is compared to a vineyard that's been set upon by some pests. You know, maybe the the little foxes are things like poor communication, uh, maybe loss of trust for some reason. Uh, Maybe it's trying to align two different careers. Maybe it's dealing with difficult family members. Uh, But notice that they work it out together so that in the next verse, there's security in the relationship again. Uh, Ruth Belgram, the wife of Billy Graham, once said, a happy marriage is the reunion of two good forgivers. Uh, you know, I hate to say this, and actually, since I'm not married, I only have this kind of, you know, second hand, but I've been told, I've been told that, you know, if you get married, one of the things that you will do is you will hurt your spouse. You will sin against them in ways you don't intend. And, you know, uh, if you're not a quick forgiver, then those things are just going to pile up and get worse and worse, and it's going to build and build, and it's going to be really that much harder. So one of the most important skills, skills, <laughs> I don't know, there's important character qualities to bring into a relationship is the ability to forgive. So it, it, it's, it's so important, therefore, that the person you marry and the person that you're discerning about marrying in uh, a healthy relationship is a person that you can solve problems with using the gospel. A person that you can solve problems with using the gospel. That means a person who's quick to repent, quick to apologize, quick to forgive, and quick to flex for the sake of the other person. Um, the opposite would be a person who immediately gets defensive, who blame shifts, who refuses to admit fault, and who always makes you into the enemy. Use tests to discern Is this someone who's committed to solving our problems using the gospel? And of course, you know, no one is perfect. Everyone has conflict. So I'm not saying, oh, you know, the moment that someone kind of gets defensive, that means you should break up. Well, no, of course not. But I'm just saying, you know, allow those times of conflict to really determine, you know, can we actually work through this and come out stronger on the other side? So um, it's been said that uh, you should date with your eyes wide open. But be married with your eyes half shut. (laughs) In other words, dating well means keeping your eyes open so that you can discern whether marriage is the right next step. All right, so one more. Last of all, this is our our concluding concluding point. We've looked at with intentionality, with community, with purity, with discernment. And then last of all, we we really have to kind of end tonight on a note of humility because... um, Yeah, to, to get at why I say humility, let me, let me just read for you uh, a favorite verse of mine that is about relationships from the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 18 and 19 says this. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. Interesting, isn't it? Now, a question for you. What is it that an eagle in the sky, a snake on a rock, a ship on the sea, and a man with a maiden have in common? Any, uh, any thoughts? A sense of highness. Oh, you know, that's good. That's good. A sense of highness, yeah. Oh, a snake on the rock, yeah. Maybe it's uh, at high elevation. Various tall snakes. Right? Uh, any other thoughts? A sense of power. A sense of power, okay, yeah. 
you know, it's kind of a, a riddle in a sense, isn't it? You're kind of, the Bible doesn't explain what they all have in common, but it's kind of left there for you to wonder. I, you know, let me just suggest one particular answer. One answer uh, is what one person is called tracklessness. Tracklessness. An eagle doesn't follow a path when it flies in the sky. Uh, nor does the snake, uh, the ship, or the man with the maiden. There's no one path between point A, the first date, and point B, the wedding day. Now, there's certainly wisdom and principles. That's what we've been talking about. But every couple and every relationship are going to have their own unique story. So, do you see then why dating ought to like bring you to your knees and just like humble you? Because dating can feel like being a ship on the high seas. <laughs> There's lots of waves out there. And we can't do it alone, which is why the fifth and final key to dating well is to date with your eyes on Jesus. You know, maybe you need courage to ask the girl out that you've wanted to ask out for a long time and you feel like it's, you know, green light to do so. Well, you can go to Jesus for that. Maybe you need bravery to let your heart be vulnerable again. You can go to Jesus for that. Maybe you need relationship, or restoration from past, you know, like relationship baggage. You can go to Jesus for that. Maybe you need wisdom about whether or not a relationship should go forward. You can go to Jesus for that. And in fact, you can go to Jesus not just for stuff, you know, not just for courage and bravery and that sort of thing. You can go to Jesus for the most important thing of all which is himself. That is what you need. That is what we need in dating more than anything else. Because look, the only way that it's possible to love another person well is if you're resting in Jesus' love for you. Because, you know, long before you ever thought to pursue someone else, there was someone who was pursuing you. Long before you ever thought to declare your intentions to your secret crush, <laughs> there was one who declared his intentions by giving you the engagement ring of the cross. Jesus is the perfect lover, and he's our perfect lover. We want a spouse who's attractive, caring, you know, kind, compassionate. Jesus chose a spouse who was a whore and who responded to his advances by nailing him to a cross. And 2,000 years later, Jesus has never, never, never once broken his vow. I want to end with this do, tonight. Do, do, you, do you know, do you know the spousal love of Jesus? Is your identity rooted in his love for you? Because if it is, then it doesn't matter what's in between point A and point B, or whether there maybe even won't be a point B. You can look back on your dating experiences and truly say, I am so thankful for what God did through that time. It really is possible to date well. It really is possible to look back on dating, even if it doesn't end in marriage, and say, I'm so thankful that that person helped me become a better man or a better woman. And perhaps even to prepare you for your future spouse. So, five keys for how to date well. With intentionality, with community, with purity, with discernment, and with your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is messy, <laughs> but it's good. Thank you so much, Lord, that you are a God who can hold our hand and walk with us um, in the joyful parts of dating, the messy parts of dating. And Lord, thank you for the way that you can use an experience like dating to help us understand your love for us more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.